This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 17, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Many laws are begging for a bit of civil disobedience at the hands of those who aren't hurting anyone through their technically illegal activities. Author Charles Murray has an idea about how to reduce the costs of that disobedience and possibly even reward it a bit. He discussed that idea contained in his forthcoming book at the Cato Institute's Benefactors Summit in February. The book is also different, most of all, in the for the first time I present a solution that actually might get done. I, I have presented solutions in the form of thought experiments. I have presented solutions in the form of uh, one in a book called In Our Hands, which I think will eventually happen, but not until I've been dead for a long time. This one is not only practical, it actually has a chance of being implemented uh, in the next year or two, because it does not require a single law passed by Congress, it does not require the right president, and it doesn't require five sympathetic justices on the Supreme Court. To put it bluntly, what I want to do is to make large chunks of the federal code of regulations unenforceable. I want to make government into an insurable... I want to make government into an insurable hazard, uh, not unlike uh, the insurance against, against flood and fire or swarms of locusts. The, the way I want to do it is through massive civil disobedience underwritten by privately funded defense funds. Okay, that's the bottom line. Let me back up from that and give you an idea of some of the thinking that led to it. The rule of law is the foundation of civilization and is especially essential to a free society. So the decision to engage in civil disobedience is not to be taken lightly. The first chapters of the book lay out the case that we have reached the point at which in our history civil disobedience is justified. Summarizing very quickly, in my view, America's system has been transmuted into something bearing only a structural resemblance to what the founders had in mind. The substance of what they created is nearly gone. I have found myself convinced of these truths. Some of this convincing has happened fairly recently. First, the founders' constitution has been discarded and distorted in ways that cannot be fixed for reasons that are inextricably embedded in constitutional jurisprudence. Aspects of America's legal system are lawless for reasons that are inextricably embedded in the use of law for social agendas. Congress and the regulatory state have become systemically corrupt for reasons that are inextricably embedded in the market for government favors. The federal government is in a state of advanced sclerosis for reasons that are inextricably embedded in the nature of advanced democracies. Inextricably embedded means that solutions are beyond the reach of the electoral process and legislative process. The citizenry is impelled to create new counterweights. I take about a hundred some pages of fairly dense text to make those cases. I now turn to the question of how we are going to go back, uh, how we're going to go about rolling back the regulatory state. And I'll, I'll illustrate it with uh, a true story. It's the reason the book got written. My wife knows a guy in a town near us that I will call Bob. I can't identify him because it's too dangerous. Bob operates one of the many kinds of businesses that use Latino workers. 
What makes Bob different is that all of his Latino workers are documented. He spends 20 to 30 grand per year getting visas for his workers. He pays good wages, pays for their airfares, he's a model citizen of his community, a model employer. And guess what? He has been relentlessly harassed by the federal government. And my wife would come home and tell me the latest stories he had relayed to her about what they've been doing to him. And there were lots of them. And, and the first reaction was, why pick on him? He's, he's you know, done the right thing. He's documented his workers. Why don't they go after all the people who have 100% undocumented uh, immigrants? He opened himself up by documenting his workers to easy enforcement by the regulators. He made himself a soft target. The story that tipped me over the edge involved a stupid regulation that Bob could not comply with. He didn't have enough American-born workers. He couldn't comply with it. He puts ads in the papers. The unemployment office sends him people who come into his office and say, I'm coming out here because I need to have interviews in order to maintain my unemployment benefits, but I don't want a job here. There's no way he could get Americans to work for him, and he was being forced to pay large fines because he didn't have enough. He became so frustrated that at one point he said to the bureaucrat who was harassing him, I'm going to fight this in court, to which the bureaucrat said, you fight this and we will put you out of business. And he knew that was true. At this point, I was getting so mad. Uh, again, <laughs> I'm not making any of this up. This is the reason the book got written. That I said to my wife, I don't want to hear anymore. It just makes me too angry. And then I got this sudden thought. It was kind of a vision. And I'm thinking, wouldn't it be cool if suddenly when the bureaucrat has just said, we will put you out of business, this guy in a pinstripe suit with a briefcase shows up and says, we are taking over this man's case. We will litigate it, not only as long as it takes, we will seek to prolong the litigation. We will publicize that litigation in ways that will embarrass you and your bosses. None of this will cost uh, our client a penny, and we will reimburse him for any fine you are able to impose. And if you come back and bother him again, we will start the process all over again. And all at once, I also had the image of the government as the Wizard of Oz. I'm speaking to an audience that mostly has seen the Wizard of Oz. And, and uh, you will remember that at the end, this great booming voice is revealed to be this pathetic old man uh, when the curtain is pulled aside. And that's what I have in mind to pull the curtain aside and demonstrate that all these thousands of laws that they have passed and regulations can only be enforced if we have voluntary compliance by the overwhelming majority of people. And that led to what the idea that I advocate in the book for what I'm calling the Madison Fund, a large foundation that funds legal services that will champion individual citizens against Goliath. Its longer range point is to make clear to other Americans that they don't have to take it anymore. There are ways to enforce an intrusive government to back off. Specifically, the Madison Fund would have three goals to defend people who are innocent of the regulatory charges against them, but also to defend people who are technically guilty of violating regulations that should not exist, drawing out that litigation as long as possible, making enforcement of the regulations more expensive to the regulatory agency than they're worth, and reimbursing fines that are levied. 
Third, to generate as much publicity as possible, both to raise the public's awareness of the government's harassment of people like them and to bring pressure of public opinion to bear on elected politicians and the staffs of regulatory agencies. Or to put it in another way, suggested to me by the head of the Institute for Justice, I want to put sugar in the regulatory state's gas tank. The Madison Fund is step one, but there's no reason why individual professions can't establish their own defense funds. Uh, let's take dentists, for example, which is the example I use in the book. You know, dentists, when you go to a dentist's office, you may not do so gladly, but you don't walk into the dentist's office thinking it's a really dangerous place. Uh, the 2015 OSHA manual for dentists is 307 pages long. In addition to OSHA's safety regulations, dentists are subject to the labyrinthine body of federal employment law, EPA regulations, and all the regulations, of course, that are piled on the healthcare industry. The ordinary dentist can almost certainly get away with ignoring a lot of those regulations. The United States contains about 140,000 dentists' office, whereas OSHA conducts about 330,000 inspections a year, because OSHA is responsible for 8 million workplaces. The chances that OSHA will conduct an inspection of a dentist are nearly zero, but not quite. And the downside risk of ignoring OSHA's regulations if you are inspected is substantial. Well, given that, why doesn't the American Dental Association establish a defense fund? We'll call it, let's say, Dental Shield. And they get 100 bucks a year from each dentist, which ought to be enough to uh, do what's necessary. And if then OSHA inspects them, or some other agency inspects them, as long as the dentist is running an office that meets ADA's professional standards, which are pretty good professional standards, uh, ADA will defend them and will reimburse the fines. Why couldn't that be done for all sorts of professions? Why, for that matter, couldn't it be done by private insurance companies if they see uh, a chance for uh, a profitable new product? Essentially, what's been accomplished is this. For a negligible price, dentists can go about their professional lives as if most federal regulations don't exist. The government will become an insurable hazard on a par with the hazard that a storm will topple a tree onto your roof. But given that hazard, you don't fill out extensive annual paperwork, uh, you don't hire a consultant to do a risk assessment of your property, you buy house insurance. I want the same thing to happen with uh, our treatment of the federal government. There's much more to the idea of civil disobedience backstopped by private defense funds uh, than I have time to cover in this uh, brief presentation. I have a full chapter on the criteria for deciding which regulations can be subject to massive civil disobedience and which regulations shouldn't be subject to massive civil disobedience. I have two chapters on how civil disobedience backstopped by defense funds can lead to changes in jurisprudence, realistic changes in jurisprudence that have cascading secondary effects on uh, restraining regulatory agencies. But let me skip all that and summarize where I want to end up. A good way to think about my strategy is that it will push the regulators into a corner and force them to confront the same reality that state troopers on America's interstate highways have to face every day. Typically, the flow of traffic on an interstate is higher than the speed limit. Have you all noticed that? Have you all participated in that? A majority of drivers on American interstates are engaged in civil disobedience 
just about all of the time. The state troopers could stop any one of them and find them, but normal practice is they don't do that. They wait until they find somebody who's driving erratically and stop them, or I'm afraid in a few cases that involve me personally, they stop people who are driving conspicuously faster than the flow of traffic. But the point is that they, they are trying to stop those people who in some way are, are going to change the driving environment in ways that are disadvantageous for the other drivers. In sports, this uh, philosophy is called no harm, no foul. If a violation of a rule has occurred in a basketball game in the NBA, but it has no effect on the flow of the action, the officials ignore it. And the game goes on, and everybody likes it better that way, both the spectators and the players. As the sports announcers say, uh, the officials are letting them play tonight. The measures I propose won't get rid of the regulations off the books, nor will they improve the content of those regulations, but they will push the regulatory agencies kicking and screaming toward a no harm, no foul position. They will be forced to let the American people play. How much chance does this idea have? I can only tell you that the responses I have been getting since I started working on the book and started talking about it with people have been remarkably positive, including one guy I know who I'm quite sure is serious and is ready to contribute $10 million if a Madison fund uh, is established. Yes, the uh, political process is a mess. Yes, the Obama administration has been a catastrophe for the advocates of limited government. And yes, in many other ways, this is the worst of times. But in other ways, the stars are aligning for a much broader rebuilding of liberty than we could have imagined even a decade ago. This idea I have for massive civil disobedience backstopped by defense funds is going to start in an environment which is remarkably receptive for it. Uh, let me just give you briefly some of the reasons. Again, there's a whole couple of chapters on this. I'm giving you pretty much a telegraphic representation. First, America is undergoing a cultural rediversification that is making local liberty more attractive to liberals as well as conservatives. The cultural stratification that I described in my previous book, Coming Apart, has a whole lot of problematic, problematic aspects that I emphasized in that book. But one of the good aspects is that the cultural sorting that has gone on has added a complex array of new ways in which American communities differ from one another. The point of the American project, to allow people to live life as they see fit, as long as they accord the same freedom to everyone else, is acquiring many new definitions in different cultural pockets of the country, and many liberals are seeing the need to be left free to do so. Uh, than saw it a few decades ago. Liberation technology. I could write a whole book, other people have written whole books, about the ways in which the IT information revolution is empowering individuals and siphoning away power from centralized agencies in ways that we have just begun to see. That technology makes liberty practical as never before. In 1900, you could make a pretty good case that you needed the federal government to oversee meat inspection or to prevent local tyrannies from, from, uh, from oppressing uh, blacks or others, you could make a pretty good case for that because there were lots of ways in which a lot of bad things could happen uh, that wouldn't go noticed. That can't happen anymore. 
There are all sorts of ways because of the information technology revolution that uh, the arguments for federal intervention just no longer make any sense. Or, and these are really wonderful examples, look at Uber and look at Airbnb. Now, and I'm looking at an audience in which some of you do know what I'm talking about and some of you don't. Um, but uh, let me assure you that uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with uh, Airbnb and Uber, the regulators are going nuts trying to hold them back. Uh, they are using the IT revolution to provide services in ways that were unimaginable even in the 1990s, and this is just the beginning. There's the increasingly visible incompetence of government. Government has been the only sector of the economy shielded from the creative destruction that globalization has engendered. Alone among American institutions, it continues to operate according to the post-World War II model, uh, the blue model, as Walter Russell Mead calls it. Even as the private sector discovered it couldn't afford unions in a globalized economy, the public sector unionized. Even as the private sector realized the defined benefit pensions could bankrupt them, the public sector locked in ever more generous ones. Even as job insecurity became routine in the private sector, the public sector continued to make it almost impossible to fire anyone. Over the past decade, the economic consequences of that have been multiplying. Um, as of 2012, state-run retirement systems had a $915 billion shortfall, uh, with the bluest states like California, Illinois, and New York facing imminent budget crisis because guess what? They can't print money. Cities are already going bankrupt. Change is being forced onto government by events. Government is visibly shoddy in ways that are ever more conspicuous. Contractors who work for the government, they have a phrase for it, good enough for government work. A contemptuous but very well-founded statement of the difference between government and the private sector. How do you know if you're in a government uh, office building instead of a corporate one? Look at the computers. The workers in that government office probably at the lower levels have better salary and benefits than comparable workers in the private sector, but the computers are a couple of generations out of date. The janitors make great money and benefits compared to janitors in the private sector, but the walls haven't been repainted for years and some of the ceiling lights are burned out. How do you know that you're dealing with the government instead of a commercial enterprise? Because in a day and age when you can order just about any consumer item, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and get it the next day. Your business with the government is still likely to have to be transacted from 10 until 3, Monday through Thursday, and in person, and it takes you three times to get it right. The alienation of the people who pay for government. It's not just Cato donors who are upset about the fact that uh, the top 10% of taxpayers pay 56% of the taxes and the top quartile pays 86%. A whole lot of people who are liberals and will not vote for cuts in government spending are also just in a, in a very fundamental, visceral sense, alienated by the fact that they are forced to carry so much of that burden. And I got news for you, that burden is going to skyrocket over the course of the next decade. The alienation of big business. I am not a big fan of big business. I think crony capitalism is real. I think collusive capitalism, where government... Uh, uh, and biz business collude, in effect, uh, to uh, scratch each other's backs are huge problems. But you know what? It's only so long 
that what we are seeing now, which are basically shakedowns of corporations, where they pay billion-dollar fines for unspecified misdeeds that are never revealed in their settlements, sooner or later, won't big business also become alienated from government in a way which, which leads them to fight back? There's more, but I'll stop. There are plenty of reasons to think that the kind of civil disobedience I am encouraging will incur, occur in the context of a society that is ready for broad-ranging changes. We won't make libertarians out of liberals, but we can make them into allies when our interests converge. Let me conclude by responding to two reactions to these remarks that you may reasonably have. One is that I'm far too optimistic about how much effect the defense funds could have. It's unlikely that they will ever operate at anything approaching the scope that I want. And even if they did, perhaps Goliath can brush off uh, the Davids without even noticing. To that, my reply is that attacking the regulatory state through the legal system is the only option for rebuilding liberty. You are not going to roll back the reach of government through the political process. It can't be done. Systematic civil disobedience may be a long shot, but it is a shot. It could work. The bureaucracies of the federal government really are sclerotic. Their thousands of edicts really can't be enforced without our voluntary compliance. Withholding that compliance really could have transforming effects on the political landscape. The other reaction concerns something that I myself have worried about, and that is that I'm oblivious to the dangers of success. By definition, a successful program of systematic civil disobedience would further erode the legitimacy of the federal government. Is that something we can afford to risk? Part of my response is that we don't have a choice. We are already, as a culture, coming apart. We must deal with that reality. More fundamentally, America was not designed to be one America. It was intended to accommodate cultural diversity in the ways that people want to live their lives. Eroding the legitimacy of the federal government as it now exists is essential to avoid an America that is defined geographically as it is now, but is no longer spiritually America. The disappearance of that America would be an immeasurable loss. America isn't the only great place to live. I could think of a dozen other countries just among the ones I know where I could have made a satisfying life for myself. The loss of the way of life in any one of those countries would have made the world culturally poorer. But that truth should not obscure another one. America is unique, not because of the kinds of cultural particularities that make every country different from every other country. If America becomes like the advanced social democracies of Europe, as it threatens to do, it would mean the loss of a unique way of life grounded in individual freedom. No other country throughout the history of the world began its existence with a charter focused on limiting the power of government and maximizing the freedom of individual citizens. Even after we set the example, no other new country subsequently has followed it. Neither has any old country modified its constitution to become more like ours. The United States from 1789 to the 1930s is the sole example of truly limited government anywhere at any time.
Under that aegis, we happen to go from a few million people on the coasts of North America to the richest and most powerful nation on earth. But that achievement was ancillary to the most important one of all. America's unique charter produced a unique culture. American exceptionalism is not something that we invented to glorify ourselves, but a reality recognized around the world at the time of the founding and for more than a century thereafter. America's unique culture, its civic religion, for that, that's what it amounts to, a civic religion made for a unique people. Some of the characteristics that we have are not to everyone's taste. I love them all. Our openness, our passion to get ahead, our passion to see what's over the next hill, our egalitarianism, our over-the-top patriotism, our neighborliness, our generosity, all wrapped in our individualism. Those American qualities are fading. They are once bright colors left too long, too many decades under an alien sun. Systematic civil disobedience offers a chance to revive those colors, perhaps not to their primary intensity that they once had, but enough that we are once again different from everyone else, uniquely American. If that process diminishes the majesty of the American government, I don't care. Our government is not supposed to be majestic. Neither, the, neither does the government command our allegiance independently of its own allegiance to its proper role. The federal government was created with one overriding duty, to allow us to live our lives as we see fit, as long as we accord the same right to everyone else, and it has betrayed that duty. America can cease to be the wealthiest nation on earth and remain America. It can cease to be the most powerful nation on earth and remain America. It cannot cease to be the land of the free and remain America. I am not frightened by the prospective loss of America's grandeur. I am frightened by how close we are to losing America's soul. Thank you very much. Charles Burry is author of In Pursuit of Happiness and Good Government, among many other books. You can read more about the power and scope of the regulatory state at our website, cato.org.